I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both, where I get into some of today's biggest questions with people I find fascinating. Last week, I got to speak with Kamala Harris, U.S. Senator from California, Democratic nominee for vice president, tough as nails. We dropped that as a special episode. And if you haven't listened to it yet, I hope that you will, because I want you to get to know this woman who's going to make history and be our first woman vice president. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memes as Politics. I hope you are well-armed for the impending coup. I haven't yet chosen a side, but I'm leaning China. First thing we're going to do tonight is the conspiracy chart. Grounded in reality to detached from reality. This comes from Abby Richards, who is... Uh, I guess mostly a TikTok person, but this circulated a ton in the last month. You've probably seen this. You've got things like chemtrails, you've got anti-vaxxers, you've got Epstein didn't kill himself. It seems to be the complete inverted polar opposite of a radicalization funnel in that at the bottom of this chart, you have grounded in reality and you have the reasonable or uh, ideas that have some level of historical traction. And then uh, it moves out the, the line of speculation, leaving reality, science denial, and then the top tier of the anti-Semitic point of no return, where you are completely detached from reality. We have QAnon, uh, the Deep State, George Soros, Illuminati, Pizzagate, this type of thing. Everybody's seen this. Yeah, yeah, it's a mini chart of truth. Exactly. Thank you, Owen, in the chat. <laughs> it's the lib chart of truth. What I think is most significant about this is that it takes these really wide competing worldviews that are mostly not grounded in anything, but narrows them down into a consensus reality, which seems to be the total opposite of what's happening here. I don't know if people saw this, but there was also a 4chan version of this meme that circulated. 4chan went back in and started to swap out some of the variables. So you have, you know, all of the big ones like the moon landing was fake or hollow earth. And then next to that, you have like patriarchy. <laughs> you know, for being like the shittiest people on earth, they, they really do know how to manipulate images in a very effective way. Let's do a quick rundown of the topics for tonight's show. Mini chart of truth, do not research. Quick update on BreadTube, best grill. First they came for the New York Post and I said nothing. Then they came for Jacobin and there was no one left to speak for me. Theories on John Raffman's selectuals the efficacy of online trolling, the Trotskyist to neocon pipeline, real, and what comes next. John Raffman's selectuals admin reveal when. Right, right, that is the question. That's the operative question. Who indeed is behind the account? Will we know? Will we find out? Will it be revealed on this stream, perhaps? Anything is possible. We are about 36 hours deep into our tour of BreadTube. This is now beyond a deep dive and has become a pretty serious survey project. 
I feel like we know the terrain very well now. I was thinking big picture about this stuff. And I was watching the documentary that our friend linked in the Discord. I would highly recommend viewing that. I'm not going to say the name because it's private, but there's a quick interview with Baked Alaska. People might remember him describing the left-right conflict as being anti-establishment versus establishment. If you look back on that period, it is really unimaginable that we would end up where we are now. At that time, the Trump insurgency narrative was so powerful that people couldn't really imagine anything other than that. You know, certainly not our state of social media today, not our state of current unrest. Lab Matt agrees. Yes, I am a scholar of the 21st century socialist. I've watched 36 hours of BreadTube. <laughs> it's, uh, yes, it is a political history degree when you finish all of BreadTube. That's, that's how it works. Um, it's it's an interesting moment. The way that things feel now is that Trump is this incompetent establishment buffoon, and the insurgent political force is out on the streets. It's uh, uh, it's AOC on Twitch. It's it's all of these other things that seem to have popular support, both boots on the ground and in social media numbers. And it's a complete reversal of the way that people were looking at this a few years ago. So I wanted to just give a few a few important notes on this recent narrative flip because it's it's easy to lose sight of these things. And we'll we'll come back to some of this at the end as well. But three major indicators that we've discussed on the BreadTube streams I wanted to highlight here for the podcast. The Hassan numbers on Twitch are astronomical. They're they're giant. He is getting more views than Steven Crowder right now. This was unthinkable a few years before. I think the highest number was 125,000 during the first presidential debate. AOC <laughs> playing Among Us, that Twitch stream brought in something like 440K, a little bit over, over that, all the channels combined, something near half a million people, simultaneous viewers. And Sufjan in the chat is is anticipating my next question when is bezos going to censor them and and we'll get to that in a in a minute clark.dude can patrons get fake bread tube diplomas with your signature <laughs> that's pretty funny actually we should probably do that if you can if you can prove that you've watched the full series you should get a little bread tube diploma um okay so twitch aside there's a few other important indicators here the number of Jacobin subscribers on YouTube has doubled since the pandemic. So let's say approximately six months, they've been doing these live stream series. This has really significantly grown the channel. And as much as there is a publication that is not the direct mouthpiece of a political party, but is in, in line with the political objectives, certainly represents the voices of a certain wing of the party, Jacobin is about as close as we have for a publication attached to a political movement. So this is pretty significant, I think, if you look at this through the pipeline, uh, you know, funnel analogy, whatever, that you can use social media to politically educate people and then build a political movement, right? This analogy is very easy when you tell people like, oh yeah, you know, uh, magazines and newspapers in the past informed people about their ideas and then they would join political movements. And <laughs> some, for some reason it gets on social media and people are like, oh no, none of that stuff is real. Memes don't matter, you know? 
So the Jacobin numbers, I think, are quite significant here. The third uh, final indicator, also very important, is the Gravel Institute, which is now over 100,000 subscribers on YouTube in the first, what is it, maybe two, three weeks here. So it's, it's pretty big. They're doing some important work there. I just want to say, like, part of what we're going to talk about today is... I guess the role of artists in making totally speculative, seemingly unfounded predictions that turn out to be true. <laughs> so remember when this stuff started, when this research and, and all of this work started two years ago, this was even unthinkable. Yeah, Lab Matt in the chat says it took PragerU years to get those numbers. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so we're we're on we're on a good start. Um, potentially, we have been hamstrung right out the gate, and we'll get to some of that later. I realize uh, there's been a lot, a lot of uh, movement and shifts in the landscape this week concerning political speech online. Yes. Quick plug for the Patreon that's happening on November 2nd. I had a number of flags that were shown as part of the Fidei Arsenale, curated by Matt Shaw, Bika Rebic, and Colin Clark. Was it February? Was it March of uh, 2020? The installation of flags was called Etiologies, all gathered from found images online, set up in a bar setting like a conventional American sports bar, reminiscent of where radicals in previous generations might meet in the beer hall to debate, uh, yell at each other, maybe fight, take it outside if you have a disagreement. I think this is all part of it. And Today, when people tend to meet up in these online political spaces, they drag in all of these peculiarities of Web 2.0, of the long tail of media. This is something that I always tell my students, usually in the first few weeks of the semester, but I point back to this very important essay from 2004. It's by Chris Anderson, who was in Wired magazine, called The Head and the Long Tail. And essentially what this refers to is increasing options for consumer identity in the media marketplace. So the easiest way to understand this is to compare television and the internet. So we might imagine back to when our parents or perhaps your grandparents were younger, they're watching television and there's all of seven types of channels, and you can choose essentially between one of seven different identities, one of seven different news sources, what have you. And so what happens with cable is that there are now 50 types of channels, 50 types of consumer identities to choose from, 50 types of sources for your news and whatnot. And what happens with satellite television is you now have a thousand channels to choose from, and the internet gives us a billion or billions of billions or however many. And what happens through this process, through this head and long tail of media, is that you get increasingly obscure and improbable combinations along the way. Jack calls it hypergranularity in the chat. I like that. That's a good description of it. Yeah. And so you get things like... Uh, Nazbol, you know, you get things like anarcho-monarchism, uh, monarcho-syndicalism, all of the silly, silly uh, primitivist caliphatism with Chinese characteristics and all, all of these ridiculous titles. But it really does seem to be a pretty essential part of the landscape now. What I find most curious is when you take the long tail analysis to these political titles is that it unexpectedly grabs onto the sectarian disputes of political organizations in that what begins as a process of staking out a niche political identity or, or a niche form of personal branding then gets caught up into the infra-left or the sectarian disputes between political groups. And these things jive very well. They seem to mesh very well, very effectively. 
The maybe third layer for this, which is only compounding the oddities, real political history is so complicated and so bizarre beyond the furthest, most ridiculous projections you could make. When you Google something like monarcho-syndicalism, you actually turn up a publication from 1922 in Portugal that was a, you know, monarchist-syndicalist publication. We talked about this in a previous episode. The breadth of weird political projects throughout actual history is really astounding on its own. So it seems to be hitting at all of these levels that are just up for grabs in the age of the internet. Among the flags included in ideology is a piece called Transstrasserism. I lost a phone recently. On that phone were images throughout the past few years of weird political spaces online, and Some of these were stories that I thought I might write at one point. Some of them were just screenshots for research and and things like that. But if people remember back when the Snapchat girl filter came out, it kind of took the internet by storm, right? It was a viral sensation and whatnot. But (laughs) oddly enough, all of the siege-pilled guys started to use the filter, and then they would take, you know, the the girl selfie with it and post it to their stories and whatnot. And um, like what usually happens on the internet is that people try to one-up each other, and then they start posting thirsty girl selfies of themselves (laughs) to entice their, their followers. And... One of the people that I was following, this is very in-depth. This is like, you know, maybe in the hundreds of followers. They then take the thirsty girl selfies of the siege-pilled kids and put up a poll to vote for right or left, which is the hottest girl. They call it best grill. I had I had all the screenshots. I had every single one of them. And I thought, maybe one day I will write about this. I will write about uh, the complexities of gender in anarcho-fascism and weird corners of the internet. And unfortunately, I, I decided that they'll probably kill me if I do it. <laughs> so maybe I won't write the story. But um, now we can safely know that all of those screenshots are gone and um i have been unburdened i guess because now i don't even have the option to write about it i can't get into the phone so the screenshots are gone unfortunately all those moments will be lost in time like tears There's a, there was a great, this, uh, this I wish I had though. There was one screenshot that was lost where, um, okay, so Strasserism is, I fucking, I hate even talking about this shit. Uh, Strasserism, also called third position. This is a very real thing. It's a very real movement. All those people got killed, by the way. There's no version of a left-wing fascism. Like those people literally all got executed. There's something else called fourth position, which we might have talked about a little bit on the stream, which is Duganism. He is the chief philosophical ideological force behind the Russian annexation of Crimea. This is a real guy who's alive today who has some level of influence in actual Russian politics. But I'm deep in I'm deep in Instagram and I'm scrolling and you know I I'm I'm totally unfazed by this stuff anymore. But I come across his account and they're their bio, their ideology says fifth position. <laughs> like, which is not, just to be clear, that one's not real. Like that doesn't, you count up the positions, <laughs> like you get more extreme. 
name. <laughs> I guess it's like Anarcho Nazbol or something like that. But it was really, it was really too much. Yeah, you constantly have to go harder. You have to accelerate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the more meme. Anarcho Contrarianism, I like that. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good ideology. But all, all of these things, it's like, it's like standing in the cereal aisle and seeing a million different options. It's, it's completely overwhelming. But I think certainly on the entry level, that idea of using politics as a niche form of personal branding that is especially fitted to the environment of social media, that analysis makes sense for the early stages of it. And then you get to all, all of these other complex factors that we outlined a little bit of before. Are you now? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? This month, we've had several major shifts in political speech online. A few of these we've forecasted for a while, but some of them seem to be happening faster than expected. QAnon is completely off of Facebook. Nothing. Boom. Gone. I got an email from a journalist this week asking for some info about... Do you know of any Q groups and any places where they're organizing meetups? Like, where would I go to find this? And I told him the Q stuff was really organized just out in the open. It was all, you know, boomer stuff on meetup.com and Facebook groups and the like. I don't really follow Q so much because it doesn't seem like anyone who's under the age of 35 or so is really into it. I expected Facebook to kind of let QAnon run its course, but I guess they have preemptively cut it off, maybe too little too late. The major news here is the New York Post article about Hunter Biden, which was blocked on Twitter and Facebook. A few days later, I guess, it was now allowed, now you can post it. I mean, the stuff is kind of circulating out there anyway. The New York Post headline reads, Smoking Gun Email Reveals How Hunter Biden Introduced Ukrainian Businessman to VP Dad. Hunter Biden introduced his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, to a top executive at a Ukrainian energy firm less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine into firing a prosecutor who was investigating the same company, according to emails obtained by the Post. Undoubtedly, everyone is familiar with this by now. This is the hard drive that Hunter Biden leaves at a computer repair shop in Delaware, the owner of the computer repair shop happens to be a Trump supporter, gives the hard drive to Rudy Giuliani, and now we've got all of these naked pictures of Hunter Biden doing crack? Hunter Biden seems like a cool dude to hang out with for like a weekend. Beyond that, he'd get really annoying, but um, for a weekend, it seems like he'd be kind of fun. Dudes rock, exactly, yeah, thank you, Seedface69 in the chat. That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, so the, the email, the smoking gun, so to speak, reads, Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving an opportunity to meet your father and spent some time together. It's really an honor and pleasure. A, a little bit ESL, because it's from the Ukrainian dude. But so it's not really clear, you know, what this particular meeting was. Were there a whole bunch of other people? Was it like, you know, a 500-person event? Was it a personal, you know, one-on-one -on -one meeting with uh, the VP? We don't know. Um, what's most interesting to this is the liberal response because it was immediately blocked from Facebook and Twitter on the grounds that it violated their standards because of how the information was obtained, meaning that the information was extracted illegally from the laptop, and so it violated the TOS of Facebook and Twitter. Uh, it certainly hasn't stopped them from 
years worth of revenge porn and shit like that. But I guess, you know, hey, you got to start somewhere. And uh, the meltdown that proceeded after this has been just absolutely hilarious. Rachel Maddow tweets, tech experts have examined the Delaware laptop repairs claims. The Hunter Biden info was extracted using a hacking tool known as Gentoo. Contributors to the Gentoo project include numerous Russians. <laughs> I have become pure concentrated spite at this point. First, they massacred our boy. And now we have to suck it up and vote for Joe Biden and listen to this Russian disinformation. And it's like, give me a break. This is, this is really brutal. Okay, this is, so there's a, few, there's a few good things about the fallout of this. This is, um, <laughs> it, gets, it gets really funny really quickly. So supposedly the head child porn lawyer at the FBI is involved in some way, shape, or form in the Hunter Biden laptop case. And this immediately jumps to right-wing media, Hunter Biden laptop contains child porn, <laughs> which then immediately segues to like maybe one of the other people in the video is Malia Obama. You've seen probably there's an image of a credit card and there's lines of Coke and it says Malia Obama on the back of the credit card. This is actually a hoax uh, that was circulating a year ago. I think Jack posted it in the Discord, but it's it's been disproven a million different times. But now what's circulating online is some combination of all of these things that the Hunter Biden laptops contain a sex video of an underage Malia Obama. Uh, these people are sick, right? Is this, what is this, Cuties 2? <laughs> cracking myself up with that one. Um, okay, so what, I mean, all jokes aside, what is more concerning about this is the platform reaction to the news, where at first it's not allowed to circulate on Facebook or Twitter because the information was, quote, quote, obtained illegally or against their terms of service. And then... It was an editorial judgment, then maybe it's Russian disinformation, and then it's, okay, we'll allow it, but um, they kind of cut it off at the, at the head, meaning in the, the viral circulation was uh, intentionally subdued by not allowing it to have been posted. In a story that people may have missed, this was in Politico, Twitter public policy director Carlos Monge decamps for Biden transition team. So not only is social media doing the optics for the Biden campaign, but people from those platforms are literally joining his government. I'm trying to think really, really big picture. It's too early to say that the platforms are officially in league with the Democrats. That's not really what's happening here. Because as we saw from earlier this this month, Zuckerberg is quite pliable under political pressure that he was suppressing the circulation of sites like Mother Jones, and they were allowing in... Correction, I said Daily Caller. It's actually Daily Wire. Daily Wire is correct. It doesn't really seem like the individual political positions of... <laughs> John Raffman Selectuals reflexively memeing this right now already? Jesus Christ. They're really hard at work, aren't they? Interesting. It seems like a lot of work, you know what I mean? They're producing a lot of content. Where, where was I though? Let's, let's get through this section. Um, it doesn't seem like Mark Zuckerberg's personal political positions are being broadcast through Facebook. Instead, he just seems 
vulnerable to the same levers of political pressure that um, you know any other figure in the private sector would be would be vulnerable to. Certainly, this is a milestone in the platform versus publisher debate. When that is ultimately decided by the Supreme Court, which will probably happen in five years or so, <laughs> Ryan says, come on, y'all, Josh has a podcast to record. <laughs> it always goes like this, though. It's kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's fun. It's fun to have a back and forth. When all of this is decided in five to 10 years in a Supreme Court case about whether First Amendment rights apply to social media platforms, this will be part of it. This will definitely be part of it. And... I've said versions of this before, but what we have now is this uneasy alliance between uh, essentially the neoliberal establishment and the social media platforms where they are intentionally pushing down dissenting voices because if First Amendment rights were protected on the platforms, then people would be able to say whatever you can print in newspapers, voice their opinions and what have you. But now... They can have the platforms do their dirty work for them and suppress political dissent because only the terms of service apply. And this is the uneasy alliance between the neoliberal establishment and the platforms currently. Big tech is certainly overcompensating for all of the conspiracy theories around Cambridge Analytica, which is massively overvalued, around the Trump uh, win, around the impact of disinformation and fake news and the alt-right and all of these things. Uh, a lot of people still do blame... God damn it. Are you <laughs> already? All right, let me pull this up. I'm not going to bring it on the screen. In real time. Wow, well, wow. interesting. Okay. So what time is it here? Here it's 5.30. My thought is that John Raffman Selectuals is on the West Coast because of posting time. That was my theory. But if they're screenshotting this and making the memes now, we're having a big day in social media. For people who are listening on the podcast version, I just got tagged in a meme from John Raffman Selectuals again. This is going to be a nightmare to edit. Let's figure out, okay, where, where are we? Let's finish this segment, then we'll get to it. The next really big important piece of this puzzle is that Jacobin has now been blocked from posting their content to Facebook. Not from YouTube, the video is up on YouTube, but they've been unable to repost their video to Facebook specifically. So we're looking here at a tweet from Bhaskar Sankara. Your video is blocked and can't be viewed by others. He's trying to post a link to their live stream onto Facebook. The caption reads, We have a new episode of Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila featuring Marxist economist Richard Wolff. We're talking about the Jeffrey Tubin incident, the socialist victory in Bolivia, and whether Bernie can pressure a Biden administration. Facebook is now blocking our videos for violating, quote, community standards that trigger certain keywords. Was it the Marxist, Bolivia, or Biden? The thread for this, by the way, is really funny because a lot of the comments are, uh, you know, it violated the community standards. There's no such thing as a Marxist economist. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty good, you know. Uh, let me log into Facebook here. What I wanted to do was a live test to just see exactly what we're dealing with here. Let's first get the video from YouTube. Okay, I've got the URL here. Oh God, I haven't been on Facebook in like years. It's so boomered out, you know what I mean? It's like impossible to navigate. 
I don't even know how to do a status update at this point. No, that's the search button. Watch. Fuck, how do you do this? <laughs> I don't know. Plus, create. Oh, let's create a post. Okay, here we go. Let's just post the video. Can we do this? Okay, here's the test. Here's a test. Post. Posting. What happened? Did it work? It worked. Wait, it's up. What's the matter? What's wrong with this now? It's... I guess it's working. Okay, I was really, to be totally honest, I was super worried about this, that this was gonna be something like, you know, we put down QAnon, so now we're gonna put down the left-wingers too or something. We gotta make sure it's fair. We gotta make sure it looks fair, whatnot. Our next topic is John Raffman Selectuals, a troll type of account that's been circulating quite a bit recently. And I wanted to talk a little bit about anonymity online and why it's important. A lot of complexity, a lot of thoughts that has gone into these topics over the years. To some degree, trolling and anonymity is the inevitable result of free speech online. It brings out good things, it brings out bad things. One of the good things it can do is allow people to point out that the emperor has no clothes. This is actually uh, quite important if the establishment channels and infrastructure for criticism and whatnot have been blockaded or present significant damage. Oh my God, new post in their account just now. Interesting. <laughs> if the conventional channels of criticism are closed to you, then what you have to do is be anonymous, right? You can't file the criticisms under your own name. All right, let's see, let's see. Interesting, huh, huh, okay. So I know this stuff quite well because I literally invented their whole shtick. I, <laughs> like, I literally invented it. Like, I made the first account. I'm not going to say the name. The real heads know the name. We were all sworn to secrecy. And what my hope for an anonymous account could be is that it could be a source of a critical voice to hold the community to account. What seems to be happening here is we are at the level of referential humor. We are, no, no, not intellectuals. No, this is like, this is what I mean. Like artists do things that seem crazy that, you know, nobody's going to catch on to it. And then five years later, everyone's like, oh my God, there's a whole turnaround. How did they predict this before? That's what I'm, old head shit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The very, the very first, before Jerry Gagosian, before all of this nonsense. But what an anonymous account in the art world should do is bypass the conventional channels of criticism and propose a critical voice that holds people to account. If they choose not to do that and remain at this level of referential humor, then I think their own project is invalidated because anonymity on social media is what got John canceled in the first place. The one thing I'm going to refuse to do when talking about this account is relitigate John's cancellation because most people's theory is that this account exists to try and spread the blame. I feel like I have a discursive obligation as someone who's worked in this sphere for a long time, as someone who has made the podcast to talk about mimetic tactics, but I don't want to do their work for them. And so relitigating the cancellation is exactly what they're trying to bait me into doing through all of the memes. So a few pieces of background information. The account becomes active around 
October 9 or so, there's the Ray pick with the Google Street View interface. There's also a family member account, but that had been dormant since 2018 and then becomes active again, starts posting, starts liking things and whatnot. The posting schedule to me looks kind of like West Coast because it's mostly late night. It could be late night East Coast for sure, but it doesn't seem like it's Europe just because the time zones would be too far. This is definitely someone who's been inside the scene. My my general assumption from having run similar projects in the past is that there's a group of people who will run the account. It seems to be in some of the images, there's a few different image styles, a few different reference points that maybe there's different people working with different sets of knowledge, I guess, where some people may have been inside the scene, some people may have learned about it in school, uh, maybe there's an age gap or whatnot. I don't think that John is behind the account himself. What I would probably do if it was my name on the account is that I'd send a DM and I'd probably get involved. I wouldn't be surprised if he's spoken with them, but I think John has bigger things to deal with than running a meme account. My first thought, <laughs> my first thought was Spencer Longo, <laughs> because some of the formats in this are actually really deep cuts. They're memes that you would see like in the depths of 4chan that a uh, few people are really familiar with the nitty gritty, you know, inside of these communities. And, you know, Spencer's probably one of the most knowledgeable people on internet subcultures. And Spencer was in the scene, so he, he might have been behind it, but uh, Spencer has has passionately denied that or, or strongly denied that. Um, and, and I believe him when he says it. I guess my, my first observation is that myself and Dasha seem to be overrepresented or over-indexed in the scene because... I think because we reposted some of the things early on, and that would further contribute to the theory that this account is a kind of a backdoor into encouraging people to relitigate John's cancellation. Not that I think he's behind it, but I think that may be one of the objectives of the person running the account. <laughs> Shrubland says, how am I finding out about John Raffman's sexual misconduct allegations via a Twitch stream of a podcast, WTF? <laughs> it's important for anybody who is not in the minutia and the nitty gritty of the art world for context here. Nothing that is alleged is criminal in any way at all. One of the theories about the account is that it's a way to flood the hashtag and push down things that perhaps John may not want people to see. Seems like a plausible strategy. The gang stalking meme, this is where it gets more complicated. There's a picture of me and Brad at the Times Square residency, and the gang stalking meme seems to be a misattribution. Daniel Keller gave a lecture about sovereign individuals, targeted individuals, and gang stalking was a part of that. What's more curious is that a few months ago, I was on a podcast with the guys from Yeah But Still, and I spoke about gang stalking. So I wonder if there's maybe a few admins who are working with different knowledge sets. One of them heard the podcast and then assumed that I had done some artwork about gang stalking. The dangest Billy Renekamp versus Maoist Anna DeVries is uh, <laughs> very funny. It's also definitely pulled from my stories, right? Like nobody else knows those formats unless you're on Politogram. 
Um, I was thinking back to the Ed Shank and Brad Trammell project called Z, 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 and it was all of these boomer disinformation memes that were circulating. This is way, way before. This is like ancient Sumerian artifacts and reptilian overlords and that kind of stuff. This is like very early conspiracy theory. I was wondering if Ed Shank might be involved in it. Uh, I'm not really sure what connections to draw here. Let me pull up, let me pull up the quote that I have from them. Oh my God, all right, hold on, I have so many notifications. I wanna make sure I read this correctly. Okay, so previous to doing this recording, I sent them a page of notes about some of my thoughts, asked if they wanted to contribute any kind of a statement and whatnot, and they reply, we are an elite cadre of true heads and memers, in part trying to bring together the old net art slash post net community, whether they like it or not. Consider us huge fans of your work, one love. But as you know these days, everything is a psyop. And that is absolutely true, because in the page of notes that I sent them was an invisible pixel that once accessed would log the IP address of anyone who viewed the website. So I've got you dead to rights, motherfucker. I've got your name, I've got your address, I've got a Google Street View of your house, I know where your mom went to high school, I've got, <laughs> I've, I've got all of it. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty wild. I'm, <laughs> I'm actually, I'm joking, kind of. The, the embedded pixel is true, but they're on a VPN, so. I was, I was hopeful. They did go back and check it a few times, but the most that I can tell is that they are on a Chrome browser and a Mac device or an iOS device. And then that's it. So the hunt continues, right? The hunt continues. A lot of people are, I think they're kind of chuckling about it. Some people are annoyed but no one has yet been like, oh, we need to shut this account down right now. We need to get rid of it. No one has yet taken that position. I'm not really sure what to make of it because it would seem, you know, at the beginning, a few years ago, let's say five years ago, there was a real need to have this anonymity because there was no way to have a critical voice. But now that crowdfunding exists, you can do these things under your own name and you can kind of build an exit ramp. So I'm not sure if the critical thesis of this account is going to bear true, but I'm, I'll leave it at that because I don't want to take, uh, take the bait too much. So if they're pointing out that the emperor has no clothes, then great. I w I'm a fan of your work and I will enlist in your movement. If you're just here to make references, that's much less interesting and it's like kind of boring. Post-internet seems to be back in a weird way, you know? There's all of the long niche subcultures. Uh, I came across a Politogram account called Normcore Marxism <laughs> a few days ago. The content is really good. I did really embed, you can look at the, the source code in that webpage. You can look and you can see the embedded pixel. Like I'm not, I'm not joking about that, but I do, I do see that you're using a VPN. So I have been thinking a lot about post-internet, both with the ideologies, the merger of hashtags and the like, all of these long over-hyphenated labels. Certainly this account has brought me back and made me think about those years quite a bit. And for me, at least, the, the biggest takeaway from that era and that way of thinking was this 
critique of social media and generally of platforms, of identifying how at the beginning these things were kind of relentlessly cheer-led in that they would be, um, you know, in terms of Occupy Wall Street, in terms of the Arab Spring, that... Um, Social media platforms were were liberating people. They would put people in touch, and then true democracy could take place once you allowed the social media platform to kind of list everything, to itemize everything, to catalog it, and then put them in touch on this in this new public square. And instead, what what we tried to do at that time was highlight how you know these platforms are really the height of neoliberal ideology that is being passed along as a progressive rhetoric and intention behind it, but it is really just, uh, you know, searching out further value. The thing that I think was the biggest takeaway, which is maybe the connective tissue from the early ages of post-internet to now, to all of these, you know, podcast extended universe and this discursive aspect of the work that was lost in the speculative market bubble, is that Many times when we would lodge these criticisms back in the day, people would, they wouldn't, they weren't really sure what to make of our critiques. And alternatively, at the time, we were called libertarians or anarcho-capitalists or conservatives or tankies or, or what have you, all of these different types of things. People weren't really sure how to categorize this kind of criticism because what we were trying to communicate is that a poorly organized, anarchistic, decentralized left that mostly exists today is is unaware that it is working in league with the platform's larger agenda. And that what the platform wants to do is allow the social movements to sow discontent and to undermine the credibility of the institutions so that the platforms can swoop in, they can catalog everything, and they can turn them into data, they can commodify it, and they can essentially privatize these failing institutions from the inside out. And so you're left in this very weird position where you are actually like the person who is furthest left in the conversation, but you are arguing against discrediting the institutions because you realize the importance of these in building the new society. So this is, I think, a parallel to a conversation that we had in the Discord where what the platforms want, what Teal wants, is for you to give up on struggle and become an Anprim. He wants you to basically assume that there is no possibility of, of political victory and to just give up the terrain entirely. That's why he has the bunker. Like, this is part of the plan. What they don't want you to do is to be well organized and to fight them every step of the way as we bear the worst brunt of the collapse in the next 50 years, the next 100 years, and make sure that they have to share in it evenly, because that means it's all going to come out of their pockets, all of the, the pockets of the ruling class, right? Teal is going to have to pay for the collapse rather than doing, what does Peter Freys call it? Exterminism. So... I feel like this is maybe something that was lost in the the market bubble, in the professionalization of post-internet and whatnot, but there was a really important discursive contribution which has now come out that people call, uh, I think mistakenly, a type of horseshoe politics. But understanding the importance of institutions, understanding the need to defend those things, and that many times what today calls itself the left is actually the shock troops of platform capitalism without really knowing what they're doing. 
the people who are most well organized to fill that void left by the institution are these platforms. There was, I think at the time, there was a huge emphasis on tech secessionism, which for a variety of reasons later took the back seat because I think as these platforms grew in power, they realized that it was just easier to buy pieces of the state rather than to exit. 34 parking lots in the chat says, this is wild. This is exactly what I've been screaming for the past few months. It's funny, I'm familiar with the period you're talking about, but don't actually think of it in this light. So, uh, you know, don't get me wrong here. It's not that we shouldn't be working to combat the worst aspects of the institution, but the point is that the institutions are bad, yes, but the guys who are coming up right behind them to take their place are way worse. That's, that's the important takeaway for this. More than 50 years ago, four young radicals began arguing politics with one another at the City College of New York. In argument, they discovered the world. Through the power of their ideas, they hoped to change it. This week, I watched a documentary called Arguing the World. Arguing the World is the documentary about the Trotskyist to neocon pipeline. Chances are you've heard of various portions of this before. Um, it's a very powerful documentary. And this begins with a story of four young men who are mostly growing up on the Upper East and West Side of the Bronx in the 1930s. They are the children of Jewish immigrants, and they grew up extremely poor. You know, they're working in New York City in the throes of the Great Depression. All of them attend City College and collect in these two alcoves, which is essentially where the students eat their lunch and was the kind of intellectual sparring grounds of the time, where you have alcove one and alcove two, and you have they're divided up into political camps, kind of, where you have the Stalinist left at the time and the anti Stalinist left. And this was where young radicals met young, uh, ambitious people to discuss theory and to argue and to debate. I guess it's kind of like an IRL politogram <laughs> at the time. That's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, see, seed face in the chat says ye old politogram. Exactly, yeah. It begins with one of my favorite examples was Daniel Bell, who at age 13 memorized pieces of a speech from Eugene Victor Debs and was a street speaker, meaning he would get up on a stepladder on the sidewalk and he would preach the good word of the Young People's Socialist League. They're all generally in league with the same politics, which were popular at the time. Very uh, smart, ambitious young men. And there's an, an initial rift where these four men, Daniel Bell, Irving Howe, Irving Crystal, and Nathan Glazer, each are part of the anti-Stalinist left that opposes the Popular Front, that opposes the uh, dictatorship and the authoritarianism of Stalin in the USSR. At this period, things are really on the national stage. This is the first real nation-scale test of a political theory where you have liberalism in the US, you have communism in the USSR, and you have fascism in Germany, and they're all existing simultaneously. In the way that those, those nations and those armies enact their ideology is kind of seen as the proof of the theory in real time. And so what these young men uh, do throughout their careers is continue to argue against the, the USSR. A few of them begin to make an interesting turn where they 
make light condemnations of McCarthy, but spend most of their careers writing about the dangers of communism. The way that Irving Kristol describes it is that there's, in his opinion, an organic connection between Leninism and Stalinism. And for him, any test of uh, Marxism as a political theory would inevitably lead to authoritarianism. The Globe was taking a three-axis poll political compass test IRL. Yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. I've got to put an ad out for the uh, the political triangle. Yeah, yeah, I've been meaning to do that. Maybe we'll get to it this week. Um, and so what happens over the course of this story is that these young men who were teenage Trotskyists eventually, over the course of their intellectual careers, become the founders of the neoconservative movement and the Reagan revolution in the U.S., Irving Kristol goes on to become the philosophical architect of the Reagan revolution. Irving Howe goes on to become one of the co-founders of the DSA, interestingly enough. Daniel Bell is more ideologically heterodox, I guess I would say. He comes out on various sides for various issues. And Nathan Glazer goes on to become a neocon Zionist who is a lifelong and outspoken critic on welfare policy. Really, really brutal stuff. The documentary itself is really fascinating. It's two hours. I want to do a screening of it in the Discord. So watch the announcements channel for that. Taking this whole month together, what it feels like is that there are certain beliefs and belief structures at work right now that are maybe rhetorically in line with, with one thing and structurally in line with something else. There seems to be a real confusion. And I think what this documentary brought up for me was that in the historical moment, when things are really being determined, that it is less so much about the rhetoric and more about the political commitment. And I'm curious now, it seems to be we are at another historical juncture. And if the Overton explosion of 2016 really closes, really resolves in a Biden victory of a return to the status quo, it's going to be a very curious terrain for political struggle. And I think we will see some of this rhetoric and some of these political commitments start to peel apart in that wedge of what is working to undermine the institution and replace it with the private platform and what is working to build the socialist better world. We'll have to see. Jack says, Biden win will create a narrative vacuum. I would have to agree with that. I think it's important to remember that you know, 2015, towards the, the tail end of the <laughs> uh, post-internet moment. You know, these things were brewing under Obama as well. So it will be curious to see the fallout that happens in the next few days. Ever since I can remember, I've been a neo-something, a neo-Marxist, a neo-Trotskyist, a neo-liberal, a neo-conservative, in religion, always neo-Orthodox, even while I was a neo-Trotskyist and a neo-Marxist. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to end up a Neo. Just Neo, that's all. Neo dash nothing. <laughs>